0: Good morning. My name is Stephen. I'm one of the pastors at Grace. Thanks again for joining us for worship this morning. If you didn't know, I am a conflict-adverse person. I don't like to start conflict unless I absolutely have to. And just being around two people who are in conflict makes me feel incredibly uncomfortable. So, reading the passage that we have before us this morning from the book of Galatians, just reading it, makes me cringe a little bit, much less preaching it but I think it's incredibly valuable for us to see what this conflict between two church leaders was about and how it impacts us today. So, as we hear God's word read to us this morning, I have a very important question to ask you Whose side are you on? Team Peter or Team Paul? Let's listen to the reading of God's word. A reading from
1: Galatians chapter 2, 11 through 21. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died to no purpose. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to
0: God. Please pray with me. Oh God, we thank you that you promise that even in the midst of conflict, you are at work. You tell us in your word that even though the world around us might seem to be devolving into chaos, you have not left us alone. You are still working to redeem and renew and restore all aspects of your creation. We pray that this morning you would send your Spirit into our hearts, that we might hear the words of the gospel contained in this passage from Galatians, that we might believe that gospel, that we might be changed by it. I pray that my words would fall to the floor and only your words remain. And I pray this in the mighty and powerful name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. We took Michaela, our oldest daughter, to Legoland in Orlando when she was just three and a half years old. Margaret wasn't even born yet. And we quickly learned that most of the rides at Legoland are geared towards older children, seven, eight, something like that. It was a particularly hot December day in Florida, and so we were looking for the nearest indoor ride to get away from the heat. We found uh, the Lost Kingdom Adventure, which is basically a Jeep ride through Lego Egypt. We got in line and we waited for an hour, sweating. And then it was finally our turn to get into the Jeep. Nicole and my mom got in the front seat and I got in the back seat next to Michaela. The first thing you do, the Jeep goes through these doors that look like a Lego ancient Egyptian tomb. The doors close behind you. The lights go out, the black lights turn on, and everything has been painted with fluorescent light. It was actually pretty cool. I thought it was amazing. Michaela, not so much. She had had enough. She was terrified. She just stood up, said, nope, nope, and tried to jump out of the car. I caught her by her feet as she was exiting the moving vehicle. Chances are you've not jumped out of a moving vehicle because you were afraid, but I do know that you have experienced fear. Maybe it's not a surprise type of fear, one that wakes you up in the middle of the night, but maybe it's that deep inside turmoil, worry, fear that something could go on, could go wrong. Fear is an incredibly powerful impetus for us to act, to take actions of self-preservation, self-protection. But in many cases, like Michaela's, oftentimes we act in a way we think will protect us, will keep us safe. But actually, our actions lead us into a situation that is far more dangerous. The Apostle Peter has done just that this morning. And Paul, the author of this letter to the churches in Galatia, catches him as he is about to go off the rails. This conflict between Paul and Peter takes place in a city called Antioch. It's the capital city of the Roman province of Syria, and it's in southern Turkey, It's also where Paul based his first missionary journey out of. Peter has come from Jerusalem to visit, and he's enjoyed sharing meals with both Gentile and Jewish Christians. They'd had a great time. But then, verse 12, certain men came from James. These were Christian leaders from the church in Jerusalem. And most likely James, the brother of Jesus, had not sent them to come and spy on who was eating with whom, But clearly, these men were part of what Paul calls the circumcision party. These are Jewish leaders uh, who had become Christians, and they were starting to believe that Christianity looked like believing in Jesus and obeying the ceremonial Jewish laws, as we've been talking about looking through the book of Galatians. They believed that following Christ meant you had to also obey the laws, you couldn't have one without the other when these men show up, Peter all of a sudden changes his eating habits. He no longer eats with the Gentile Christians. Instead, he only eats with the Jewish Christians, alienating these other Christians nearby. That might not sound like a big deal to you. It might sound like nothing more than a middle school lunchroom mix-up. But the truth is, in the first century, who you shared a meal with was incredibly important. It showed who you valued, who you welcomed, who you thought were your equals especially for people with a Jewish background. So, when Peter chooses not to eat with the, Jew, with the Gentile Christians anymore, that was a big deal. His actions were such a big deal that even Barnabas, Paul's missionary companion, who, as we saw last week, had been commissioned by the leaders of the church to go and preach the gospel to the Gentiles, even Barnabas thought it was a bad idea. It was wrong for him to eat with Gentile Christians. Paul won't stand for it. He confronts Peter and the rest of the Jewish Christians on their hypocrisy, their choice to withdraw from fellowship with these Gentile Christians. And he confronts them by reminding them that the gospel of grace isn't a one-time thing. It's an everyday, whole-life thing. And as Paul recalls this conflict in his letter to the Galatians, he proclaims to them the exact same thing, and he proclaims it to us this morning as we have the privilege of looking at this passage. Paul's message goes a little bit something like this, a slave to fear is freed by death and freed for life. We got three points this morning, a slave to fear is freed by death and freed for life. All of us have the potential to become slaves to fear. Peter's hypocrisy is rooted in an emotion that we've all experienced. The Greek word here is phobeo, where we get our word phobia from, it's fear. These men from James show up, the circumcision party, and Peter is afraid of them. Why? Are they going to beat him up? Are they going to give him a swirly for sitting at the wrong lunch table? No, that's not it. He is afraid that if they see him eating with Gentile Christians, people who the circumcision party see as being unclean, he could lose everything that he has as a leader in the church. Dr. Paul Lim, who is a professor of church history at Vanderbilt Divinity School, puts it very succinctly. He says, Peter is afraid of losing his ABCs, approval, belonging, and comfort. You see, this disagreement between church leaders as to whether or not they should require Gentile converts to keep the Jewish ceremonial laws uh, had begun to scare Peter. He was afraid that he might come down on the wrong side of this conversation. Even Peter, who walked on the water to Jesus, who was told that Jesus would build his church upon, who abandoned Jesus, and then after breakfast with the resurrected Jesus, was restored to ministry. Even he was afraid that he would lose his approval, his belonging, and comfort. Now, chances are you're not so concerned about who you're eating with, Gentile Christians or Jewish Christians, but I know that we all uh, uh, value comfort and belonging and approval just as highly. And I also know that you know the feeling of fear that someone or something could take one of those things away, could threaten your approval, belonging, or comfort. And in those situations, we respond just like Peter did. We set up boundaries. We set up rules. We set up stipulations that we can obey, we can follow, and we can hide behind to help ourselves feel safe, to feel like we aren't threatened, to make sure we're not afraid anymore. For Peter it was following the Jewish ceremonial laws of not eating with unclean Gentiles. I suspect it's a little different for you. And there's a thousand different things that we could look at, different boundaries and stipulations you set up to stave off fear, but I would just want to look at each of these things one time. Approval. Let's say that you've been hurt by something someone has done or said to you. It might be a spouse, it might be your boss or a teacher or a friend, it doesn't really matter who it is. Someone has done or said something that has hurt you, but you're afraid that if you bring it up, if you tell them what they've done, if you talk about how you've been hurt, they're just going to look down on you. They're going to think that you're just dredging up some kind of drama. You're going to lose their approval. So what stipulation do you put in place? Will you say to yourself, I just got to keep quiet. I just got to take it and move on so I can save the relationship. I'll just absorb the pain. What about belonging? Let's say you're new to a group. Maybe at work you've been transferred to a different team, or at school you've been assigned to a different group project to work with, or or maybe you started a new exercise class since your first day there. It doesn't matter what, but you're new to a group, and you're afraid that if they see a radical part of your personality or, or they don't like something you say or you do, you'll never feel like you fit in. So, what stipulation do you put in place? Well, you reserve yourself. You don't show too much of your hand, and you agree with everything that they say, and you comply with everything that they ask you to do, just so you can belong. What about comfort? Well, you like your life, don't you? You've got most of it figured out. Yeah, there's a few hiccups here and there, but for the most part, you know how to deal with the problems that come in day in and day out. You know how to make things work. You're comfortable in your life, and so you're afraid. If you get too close to somebody, they might bring some mess in. They might bring some kind of their problems in. They might require too much of your time. Or if they get too close, they might unearth something that you've either covered over or that you don't know about, some kind of mess that would take away your comfort. So what stipulation do you put in place? Well, you say, I just don't want to get close to too many people. I'm not going to ask too many deep relationship-driven questions because they might ask those questions back to me. I'm going to keep everybody at an arm's distance. Don't go looking for trouble. No trouble will find you. Hiding behind these rules, these boundaries, these stipulations that you establish, it, it gives you the illusion of protection, of safety. But eventually. Something else will come along. Someone else will threaten the approval, the belonging, the comfort in your life, and you'll have to redraw those boundaries. You'll have to redraw the lines. That's what it looks like to be a slave to fear. For Peter, for you, and for I, eventually as we reestablish those stipulations of safety over and over again, eventually we come to believe that we are the only safe ones. We are the only good ones, the only right ones. We neither need nor can trust anyone else. It's an endless cycle, driven by fear. It leads to isolation and to death. Paul sees this happening to Peter and to the Jewish Christians there in Antioch. And so he steps in. He creates conflict in order to show them the way out. Paul says a slave to fear is freed by death. A slave to fear is freed by death. Paul paves the path for Peter and the other Jewish Christians out of this cycle of fear by reminding them that true security, true protection cannot come from obeying any laws. It can only come from death. That's what he says in verses 15 and 16. Listen to this. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. This is so important that he actually repeats himself immediately. So, we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. What, Pe- what Paul is saying here to Peter and the other Jewish Christians is a reminder of what they all believe, where their faith all started, he says, don't you remember that we know you can't be saved by obeying the law. Even though we as Jews were given God's special law. He gave us special regulations that he gave nobody else, and we know those couldn't save us. No matter how much we obeyed, we know that the only way we can be justified is by faith in Jesus. And by justify what Paul means is being rescued from our sin being judged as righteous, declared as righteous by God, being given access to God Himself and gifted with His blessings. Paul says we never got any of that because we obeyed. The only way we were justified is through faith in Jesus Christ. And what, what, what about Jesus? Faith in what? Faith in the reality that Jesus was crucified It's the same way that you and I are justified, that anyone who has ever been justified has been justified by believing that Jesus was nailed to a cross in their place. The punishment that you and I deserved, Jesus took upon himself. You've probably heard the story recently of six year old Bridger Walker, who lives in Cheyenne, Wyoming. He and uh, his sister were outside in the front yard playing when a a dog came charging at his little sister, vicious, snarling, ready to attack. And he stepped in front of that dog, saving her life, and he took the attack, fought the dog off. He received 90 stitches in his face, in his head, in his hands, saved her life. And when he was interviewed by a, a local news outlet, they asked, why would you do that? what were you thinking? Weren't you afraid? I don't know if Bridger Walker knows anything about Jesus, but his response sounds an awful lot like Jesus. To those questions, he responded, I thought, if someone was going to die, it probably should be me. That's amazing. And that's exactly what Jesus says about you. And staring death in the face the the punishment that your sins deserve. Jesus says, if somebody's going to die, it's going to be me. Think about it this way. That large, snarling, attacking dog is without question the most terrifying thing that that little girl has ever experienced in her short life. And in one swift movement, her brother saved her from that fear, took it away immediately. Now, whether you know it or not, whether you're willing to admit it or not, the punishment that your sins deserve is without doubt the most terrifying thing possible, an eternity separated from the God who created you. And in one amazing, dramatic moment, Jesus stepped in front of that punishment and took it upon Himself. He saved you from it in His death. That's Paul's first point against fear. The law could never save you, Paul says. Following the law would never step in between you and an oncoming punishment. The only thing that can and has is Jesus. He took that punishment. He has rescued you from that fear. And believing that isn't just a one-time thing. It's not coming to faith that He's rescued you and then going about your daily life. It's believing in it day in and day out. You've been saved, freed, rescued by death, but you've been freed for life. A slave to fear is freed by death and freed for life. Now, this is Paul's big point to Peter, and it's his big point throughout the entire letter to the Galatians. He says, I've seen these people reacting out of fear. I've seen them withdraw from eating with Gentile Christians. Guys, we all agree that it wasn't obeying the law that saved you in the first place, why would you ever go back to the law to think that it could save you now? If the law couldn't save you from death, why do you think that it can give you any life? Paul comes at this in several different ways in the last five verses, verses 17 through 21. The first thing that he says is, uh, if you are a sinner and Jesus has made you clean, what makes you think that Jesus isn't powerful enough to keep you clean? What makes you think eating with Gentile Christians is going to reverse the good thing that Jesus has done in you? Verses 17 and 18. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Paul says to the circumcision group, If you're worried that eating with Gentile Christians is somehow going to unclean the thing that Jesus has already cleaned, you don't think Jesus is powerful enough. Jesus can't be made unclean. The new life He's given you can't be made unclean by eating with Gentile Christians. But if you say, Jesus has cleaned me, and now I'm going to keep myself clean by not eating with unclean people, you actually make yourself a liar a transgressor, as Paul says. He continues, verse 19, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Thanks, Paul. That's really clear. I'm so glad that you put it that way. We got to unpack this language just a little bit to understand what he is saying. He's saying it was through the law that he died to the law. He's already gone over the fact that the law provided him with one thing, a clear evidence that he, a sinner, could not do anything to rescue himself. The law showed him how much he needed to be rescued. And so, he looks to the rescuer, to Jesus, who not only took the punishment for the law breaking, but also has given to us his obedient record, a record of perfect righteousness, which means I no longer have to uphold the law for my salvation. Through the law, I've died to the law. It no longer has any claim on me. Why? Paul says, so that I might live to God. Now that I don't have to uphold the law in order to be saved, I can walk and talk and eat and serve and love as God has created me to. Paul's argument is building momentum, building ground, and he ends it here in verses 20 and 21 with a passage that you might have heard read before. This is what Paul has been getting at for the first two chapters of the letter to the Galatians. This is what Paul was saying in Antioch to Peter and the Jewish Christians. He says, you can't start by faith and then turn to obedience. You can't say, I've been saved by believing in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and then sustain yourself on good works. Paul's saying, if your life was rescued by Jesus' death, then every step you take is because of Jesus' death day one, you're alive because Jesus died for you. Day 7,464, you're alive because of what Jesus has done for you. You can't make day 7,644 or whatever about how you are keeping yourself alive through obeying the law. I want you to imagine a scenario with me for a second. Imagine that you have kidney disease, that your kidneys are not filtering the toxins out of your blood like they should. And so three times a week, you have to get in your car, drive to a dialysis appointment. They draw out some of your blood, they clean it up, they pump it back into your body. Three days a week for a year. And then one day, you pass out. Your kidneys are done. They've stopped working. But you wake up in the hospital, and somebody tells you that that morning, a young man died And he was an organ donor, and his perfectly good, perfectly healthy kidneys have been donated to you. You should have died, but you're alive because this person died for you. What a gift, what a miracle, what a grace from God. But here's the thing, you're not going to wake up tomorrow and get in your car and go to a dialysis appointment because that new life that was gifted to you those new, perfectly working kidneys are going to function and keep your new life going. You will live out of that new life. I think, honestly, this is where the rub lies for many of us Christians today. No matter where you're from, Silicon Valley, the Midwest, East Coast, the South, wherever, it's easy for us to believe that faith in Jesus is good and helpful because of what it saves us from. But then tomorrow morning, I have to wake up and I have to work hard in order to keep my approval and my belonging and my comfort, right? Like, I need to figure out what to do in order to be a good friend and a good worker, a good husband, a good father, whatever. I mean, I've got these routines that I can rely on, but if something goes wrong, I have to figure out what to do. It's easy for us to believe that way. But Paul's point is this. Figuring out what to do won't ever make you a good anything. But if you believe that Jesus died and rose again for you, then you are believing that God has already declared you and is making you good, and believing that will show you what you're supposed to do. Let's go back and look at those uh, three applications we started with. Approval, right? Someone said or did something that hurt you, but you're afraid that if you bring it up, they might look down on you, you might lose their approval, whatever. But if you know and believe that nothing you say or do can change the way that God feels about you, the God of the universe who created all things out of nothing by the power of His Word, He approves of you and nothing you say or do can take that away, you're free. You're free to bring up this pain that this person has caused to you in a loving way, to offer them forgiveness to set them free. You're free to say that to them. You're also free to forgive them in your heart and not bring it up at all, to know that this person's life is probably pretty hard and you can be a source of light by just forgiving them and moving on. What about belonging? You've got this new uh, group of friends potentially, but you're afraid that if you do or say something they don't like, you'll never belong to them. Well, if you know that Jesus died on the cross for you and has guaranteed your seat at the family wedding feast for all eternity and has brought you into a new community now called the church, his present earthly family, and nothing you can do or say can change that, you're free to be whoever you are, to be as wild and crazy around these people as you really are or as reserved around them as you'd like to be. You're free to disagree and engage with them. Your honesty, your authenticity, your vulnerability is going to be a signal of freedom that so many people in our culture don't feel like they have. What about comfort, right? You don't pursue deep friendships because you're afraid of the turmoil it might cause in your life, either by other people's messiness coming into your life or them unearthing something that's messy in your own life. Well, if you believe that Jesus died and rose again for you, if you believe, as the Heidelberg Catechism says, that your only comfort in life and in death is that you belong to Jesus, body and soul, and that nothing that you can do will separate you from God, then you're free to walk into as many people's mess as you can handle. You're as, you're as free as possible to engage and to, to help others deal with the sadness and brokenness of life. As far as you feel comfortable, you're also free to let people open up little places of your heart that you've covered over, things that you think you've got under control, to bring up mess in your life because you know, nothing can separate me from the love of God the Father. You're also free to say, I just need some alone time. I need to be able to be by myself. I can't pursue 3,000 people at once. You are free to love and serve as you have been loved and served. I know that there's so much fear going on in your life right now. I know that worry is overwhelming based on the circumstances of our world at this point. But what the gospel tells us is this, don't retreat into the things that make you feel safe and comfortable because they never actually keep you safe. Instead, remember that Jesus stepped in front of the greatest possible fear that you have. He has taken that upon Himself, and He will walk with you into any situation and every situation that you are afraid of. You are not alone. You are free. Jesus has set you free. Let's pray. Oh God, what good news. What good news to hear that we are not alone, that we don't have to protect ourselves, but that You are protecting us But if we're honest, God, it's really hard for us to believe day in and day out. And so we ask that you would help us continue to hear and apply the gospel. Help us to feel the freedom that Jesus bought for us with his blood. And help us to live as you created us to live, loving and serving others as you have loved and served us. We thank you, oh God, for this conflict between Peter and Paul. We thank you for the freedom that Paul brought to Peter, and to the other Christians there, the freedom that he was proclaiming to the Christians in Galatia and the freedom that the gospel proclaims to us this morning. We ask that we would be able to live out of it. We pray this in Jesus' mighty and powerful name. Amen.